Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Can Shambhala get sober? That is the topic of today's talk by Dr. Shante Smalls. Uh, this was a talk she gave just earlier this week at our weekly Dharma gathering on Tuesday night. What, is, what does that mean, getting sober? Well, getting accountable, getting a sense of, getting a grip of troubling behaviors and patterns that have been uh, perhaps a long-standing but unexamined issue or insufficiently examined issue in Shambhala and also particularly in the wake of recent revelations of misconduct. Uh, Dr. Shante Smalls, as you know, is a regular contributor to the podcast, uh, really uh, gets into her own personal story, which is very generous of her, as a way of examining what are the possibilities for Shambhala to, quote-unquote, get sober, get accountable. Dr. Shante Smalls is leading our Meditation in the City Retreat, which is beginning this Friday, August 17th. Seven days of meditation uh, available to you. Uh, if you can't do the full seven days, you can sign up just for the first weekend or by the day. Make it work for your schedule. But this is an opportunity to uh, practice uh, deeply in the heart of New York City at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Uh, there's still space available. For more information and to register, click the link on the homepage for the Meditation in the City Retreat. Okay, here is Dr. Shante Smalls. As uh, most of you probably know, Shambhala as an organization is, uh, let's say, has hit a bottom. Is the karmic, cumulative karmic circumstances and confusion that in my estimation really are mixed with this lineage. The intergenerational um, sexual harm, starting with our founder, Chogim Trimpa going to the Vajra regent, and now to our lineage holder, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche is has ripened, but also a lot of questions and conversations around alcohol and drugs in our um, sangha and uh, in our leadership. And maybe some of these conversations couldn't have happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago publicly but they're happening now. So it's a very interesting time. In New York, um, I don't know what to say except for that things are evolving, which sounds a little vague and a bit of a cop-out, but there's so many different conversations happening and so many different feelings and so many different investments that it's very interesting to have conversations with people at different points on their Buddhist path or Shambhala path. And my own sense of thinking about reflecting on my own uh, uh, life and my own path really to what brought me to Shambhala. So <clears throat> I titled this talk can Shambhala get sober? Because I was thinking about uh, a couple of things. One was I was having a lot of different conversations with people in person, some of my students, some of my private students, and then some people online and some friends on the phone and what have you. And, um, and there, was, there was a lot of speculation. What's going to happen with this? What's going to happen with that? You know, some of it's very earthy concerns, like we want to keep the doors open here or other centers want to keep their doors open. But something that's been coming up 
for myself and other people is sort of like what's, what's happened to the path for them. You know, they're a little shaken or a lot shaken. Here in New York, we made a compromise. There was a big call from, I would say, generally some of the newer people to Shambhala to take down the pictures of the lineage holders in this room, the main shrine room, specifically not in the Vajrayana rooms, the Dragon Room, the Kalapa Suite, the Kaslan headquarters and so forth, but in this more public space. And then there was a equally big uh, a pushback from some senior students, Vajrayana students, not wanting that to happen. And the center staff was put in a really tough position and um, chose to cover them, which was the recommendation from Acharya, the Rupa Acharya, Suzanne Duquette, that if a center felt the need to recognize the challenge that the photos might present for survivors of sexual assault or abuse or misconduct, that covering them was more appropriate. But of course, centers could do what they want. Certain centers took them down right away. Others have left them up. Some centers took down one photo and not the other. And I say all that to say this is that because it's no longer business as usual. We're, we've come to a point where there's actually an opening, an opportunity as a center, as an organization, as a spiritual movement to ask some questions, maybe with not too many answers. And for those of you who are here or for those of you who um, are listening to the podcast, um, if, you're, if you know anything about 12-step, programs, um, you know that part of the process is um, recognizing that there's a problem or a set of problems and that your life is actually up into that point where you said, I think I need some, a new direction has been a lot of running on inertia, self-will, a lot of I've got this lack of humility, a lack of right-sizedness. And Shambhala does have something really special. I never knew Trimper Rinpoche when he was alive. I was a child when he died. But I came to this Shambhala through his teachings. And the Sakyang is my teacher. I do have a Samaya vow with him. I, he is my guru. And I have a connection with this lineage. And so I have found myself really asking a lot of hard questions about how to really work with this situation. What tools do I have to really work with uh, extreme difficulty and pain, my own and that of others? And, and so I'm going to tell you a little story and then I think I want to say um, a few things about the ground, which is always the ground and really the view, which is basic goodness. And basic goodness does not mean it's all good. <laughs> no problem, whatever happens, it's all good, it's all, you know, we don't, we don't need to shoot to the absolute because we don't live our lives that way, you know? Like we put on shoes put on underwear, I mean, maybe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? By law, we're supposed to, but. We walk one step at a time. These kinds of things, we live on the earth. But it's weird when we start to talk about spiritual concepts, all of a sudden, all of us become Buddhas and we start talking about we all are one and it's nothingness and an emptiness and there's no other place where we live our life like that, right? We eat food and we drink water and we defecate and we walk our dogs and we go to sleep and we do human earthy things. So our spiritual path also has to have an earthy element that other people can see and experience and relate to. This is the Buddha himself, his teachings, like he touched the earth, you know what I mean? That's part of how he woke up. So I really came to meditation and uh, Buddhism, specifically in meditation more broadly, 
through my own recovery process. And I think I had a very, uh, you know, you don't have to believe in karma or anything, but even just energetically, I had a very, f a, my early life was filled with a lot of events, let's say. Some were traumatic, some were very advanced, and there was a kind of speed to my life. So that by the time I was 16 years old, I ended up in my third rehab. And I really couldn't imagine my life beyond the age of 25. So that's pretty sad. And my plan was that when I turned 25, I was going to take my life because that was all that there was to see, right? I mean, I'm well past 25 now, and I feel like I'm just learning how to be a human being. But my worldview or my view at that point was that I would have done, seen it all, and I just, that's as much as I could take, really. That was the truth of it. It wasn't that I thought I would attain any kind of success. It's just I thought that I would be done. And something happened really just uh, really through conversations with other humans who were, knew something about suffering brought on by drugs and alcohol. Where they were able to kind of talk to me and offer me some possibilities that I didn't see. And it took a lot of, for me, looking and listening and trying things out on my own to say, okay, maybe I need something beyond my own, um, it wasn't even willpower, my, it was like my own uh, fantasy, you know? And through this process of getting introduced to the whole 12-step situation, which was, from the outside, seemed really kind of cuckoo and weird. And I really only knew from movies I had seen. And like one of my favorite movies, when I, I used to watch Kramer versus Kramer. I don't know like, how like, that ever became a movie I watched, but I, was, I loved movies where there was a lot of drama and sorrow and um, like Love Story was one of my favorite movies. Like, I don't, I don't know why, but, and, I, and so what I knew about like kind of 12-step stuff was sort of, you know, TV and whatever. But for me what happened was I really began to um, explore um, how to get to know myself and how to live a life that wasn't where I wasn't bent on destroying myself. And there I encountered some um, Dharma punks. These young guys, they were older than me, but they were you know, in the early 20s. And um, they were really cool, and they had buzzed heads, and they had um, leather jackets, and they smoked, and they rode motorcycles, and they swore, and they had a lot of tattoos. And I was like, whoa, these guys are awesome. And if that's a meditator, like I want to do that, you know, and um, whatever, <laughs> whatever it takes. Uh, so I <laughs> and I started um, because you know I had similar, I had a little bit dabbled in uh, reading. Um, I, I was really interested in religion, and I grew up in a very religious household, so I read like theological books all the time, and. I was very interested in world religions, and so I started reading a lot about Buddhism, and I started sitting Zazen and the Zen tradition when I was like 16, 17. And, you know, over time, I found my way to different places and uh, eventually came to Shambhala. And at that point, I really came to Shambhala at a point of crisis. I had been in recovery for a long time at that point continuously. I was very active in the, you know, my recovery community and I still am and uh, I was doing all the right things but there was something missing and part of it was that I had kind of 
figured out how to um, do all the right things but still keep a, a piece of life to myself, you know what I mean? Like I was gonna run the show in a couple of areas, really that was work and re romantic relationships, so not a surprise. And what happened was is I, um, a narcissist was put in my path. And I don't know if any of you are narcissists or <laughs> have met a narcissist, but uh, there's uh, maybe a psychopath is like a match for a narcissist, but there's, you, there's like, yeah. <laughs> They've got a lot of tools to get what they want. And um, I uh, really met my match. And everything I had been doing up until that point to kind of in that area of trying to relate to another human being in a romantic sense, all the tricks I had of people pleasing, AKA people using, and kind of picking people who were a little bit emotionally infantile so that I could feel superior and kind of the ways that I avoided my own intimacy with another person, it just like, none of those tricks work in that relationship. And I found myself really relying more and more on meditation because I, was, I didn't know what was true. I didn't know what was false. I, um, I would try to talk about it with people, but it just, I just was very confused because I was being gaslit all the time. So I started just sitting, and I remember I was listening a lot to Pema Chodron's um, Learning to Get Unstuck podcast. Listen, I, was, I would fall asleep to it, six-part, um, really great um, teachings on when you, the things that hook us and how to work with that. You know, a variation on things she's taught a lot, but there was something about hearing her voice and the live questions and the, uh, a friend and I used to have, we even had like little inside jokes about it because we listened to it so much. And I found that I began to have this sort of robust quality internally because I was really just, I was really sitting with my habitual patterns, my, my resentment and my fear and my incredibly discursive mind. And I wasn't trying to actually, in that context of sitting, change anything. You know, I was like an action person. You know, there's a saying, move a muscle, change a thought. But I was actually not, I was having the thoughts and just letting them be. And I realized I needed that tool of just kind of wearing myself out to get to know what was churning underneath, what was driving me. You know, why was I so anxious? Why was I so arrogant? And it was the fear, you know, the fear, the fear, the deep, 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 deep fear. So I somehow, I ended up in uh, Shambhala and I would come into this room. It was not as nice as it is now. And, um, but I would come here and I would sit and I would listen to the teachings, which always seemed to be about death. And um, I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Aces and I, uh, you know, and I would, I was like, there's something here. I was in graduate school at the time, so I would have class, like uh, my class would end at seven o'clock, and they'd be like, we're all going out. I was like, I'm gonna sit at the Shambhala Center. Like, okay, weirdo. And um, I really just started. Uh, I just like was coming here and coming here and coming, and doing my twelve step stuff and seeing how they were helping. But I also had a little bit of a barrier here at Shambhala because at the time. It was still a little lushy here. I don't know if people remember in the mid 2000s, it was like, it was a little celebratory all the time. And I was a little bit like, what, why, what's going, why are people having sake? Like, I don't understand what's like, it's, it's Tuesday at like six o'clock, what's going on? And um, it was a little like weird for me just having that heightened awareness. Um, and I had, had, had not had that experience in any other meditation context and I was just sort of noticed that and as I begin to read more about Trimpa Rinpoche I just begin to have questions and you know the teachers would be really honest about their experience was that yeah he drank a lot and you have to weigh whether 
that's, you know, workable for you? And they would say, you know, an interesting question, which sometimes, which felt helpful, very helpful on one level, and then also felt like a sidestep, which they would say, you know, how do you experience the teachings? And it was like, they're amazing. But I also had to ask the question about the container, you know, and about some of that, um, it just couldn't stay there. So, you know, it's because it's been said that when you come to a Shambhala Center, you meet the Vicharya, Vicharya Chogam Chum Rinpoche's mind. You meet his mind. And so I think we meet his brilliance and maybe some of his confusion too, his trauma as a genocide survivor and a refugee watching people he loved die, some of starvation, and coming to a foreign, a few foreign lands, and being treated like an alien. So, you know, there's a lot there as a full human being. Same with the Sakyang, his own trauma, abuse, um, losing his father, being a refugee. These aren't excuses, but these are realities of our human condition and how thinking of my own um, story where there are areas of my life where I've been super asleep, like no clue that it was a problem, no clue. Like not even, not even a, a blip on the radar that being in a relationship with a narcissist might be a problem. Not even a blip on a radar that, you know, working 90, 100 hours a week might be an issue, right? So there were whole things that I just had total blinders to and I, it wasn't a problem until it was a problem, you know what I mean? And then it was really like, I'm, I, I can't do this anymore. And it was always shocking. Like when I realized that my relationship to alcohol and drugs was gonna kill me, you would think I would have said, okay, that's, but I was like, what do I do? <laughs> I, don't, hmm? I don't know what I could possibly do. So I understand that um, confusion around being made aware of harmful behavior and being completely, to other people, of being very simple, you know, get help. But when you're in it, it feeling like this is helping as much as it's, you know, harming. And so part of what began to happen for me as I really went further and further along the path, the structure path in Shambhala, going on deep retreats, going on a lot of retreats, spending a lot of time in retreat, practicing a lot, studying a lot, um, contemplating, was that I began to experience more and more level of integration and the, this is how it really presented itself. I started asking more questions of myself. I started saying, why, do I, why did I have that? Huh, that was an interesting reaction. And not like, I suck, I'm so self-centered, and I'm the worst, and I'm the, it, but just like, that's curious, I'm curious about that. And I begin to get curious about other people, not lazy, not, not doing any work, but there was a sense of curiosity mixed in the reflection. Instead of just like, I've got to root this out and then I'll be better. And so I began to be less fragmented and less afraid of uh, being kind of a whole person and being the sort of the same person everywhere I went rather than you know, different people to different, a different person to different people. 
I begin to notice kind of this tendency the different habitual patterns in my communities. In 12-step, there's a lot of emphasis on, I'll, I'll say I notice that when people share feelings or emotions, there's a tendency to wanna give a solution instead of just like letting there be space. And in Shambhala, what I've noticed is that um, there's maybe not enough emphasis on actually doing something. And so for me, it's been very powerful. It's been actually like transformative to have these two systems that um, are very different in a way, but are completely complementary. Like a last year or so, a friend of mine um, from uh, one of the Florida Shambhala centers turned me on to this book called uh, Basic Sobriety, which is by a Shambhala guy, Eric Rabineau, and it's um, called Shambhala Buddhism and the 12 Steps, and he basically does a reading of the four dignities and the 12 Steps, which is really, really fascinating to me, just from a like kind of intellectual point of view, but it's also really fascinating from a living point of view. And if you don't know what the four dignities are, don't worry about it. <laughs> Tiger, lion, garuda, dragon, and they have aspects to them. Of meek, perky, outrageous, and inscrutable. And when this whole crisis really uh, appeared, publicly, I really felt like, oh, this is like a great time for us to like do an inventory of Shambhala and be like, why are we, what is our purpose? What do we say we do and what do we do? Who feels welcome? Who doesn't feel welcome? Where are our blind spots? Maybe we can't see them. I thought, oh, you know, and I'm not the only one. Other people said this. Maybe, you know, Shambhala could learn something from these other organizations that take inventory and that ask questions about how, the, how, we act, how are we functioning and, and not to be afraid to look at ourselves and say what we want to be around. <laughs> so how can we look at ourselves in a way that's constructive? So I thought I'd just read a couple of questions. I'm gonna ask us to actually break in groups and just answer one question, but I, I'd like to read some of them for you off my phone. So this is um, from a process of taking a group inventory to evaluate how the groups are fulfilling their purpose. And they could be adapted for um, a Shabala context and arriving at a, like an informed group conscience or a, or a set of principles. What is the basic purpose of Shambhala? We might have different answers to that, but it's good to ask that question. What is the, what is the, what is the basic purpose of Shambhala? What more can Shambhala do to carry meditation to the world? Not just being in our centers, but interacting with society. Are we attracting people from different backgrounds? And are we seeing a good cross-section of our community? And then finally, do new people stick with us or does turnover seem excessive? If so, why? What can we do? So these are, there are more, there's like more questions and you can add your own, but um, 
there's even questions like, how can we get more people to do chores? <laughs> um, how, how can we bridge the gap between long-time people and newer people, right? Bridge that divide. So really thoughtful questions that we struggle with. So I, I want us to think about individually, not just our own relationship to say, oh, addiction, or that's fine, you know? If you want to think about your own relationships uh, to substances or, you know, money or whatever it is, but also how we as a, an entity, as a Sangha, as a community of practitioners, do we feel a sense of responsibility for, uh, for each other and for our health and well-being? Including those who have been harmed, whether it's sexual harm, racial harm, uh, other forms of inequity, uh, lack of accessibility for people ability issues, lack of accessibility in terms of economics, looking at our price structure, things like that. All sort of a 360 view and looking at these things shouldn't be a cause for defensiveness. It doesn't mean we have to change everything, but a kind of openness to just look. That's what we do as meditators, we just look. And sometimes things arise and we say, okay, this needs some action. And sometimes it's, I'm not ready. But the refusal to look is not warriorship, that's cowardice. Sometimes I take the opposite view, someone who has a totally different view than I do in a safe context, right? Or in a reasonable context, right? There's some things I'm not gonna, I don't take on. I'm not the, like, the guy who went and like, infiltrated the clan or whatever, that's not me. And he got like, beat up all the time and all this crazy stuff, like, okay, that's good, but no. But I mean, I mean, just a disagreement, right? And it's like, oh, what would it be like to come into Shambhala and six months later, Sakyang Mipan Rinpoche's face is on the, uh, cover of the New York Times on the front page, on the bottom, under the fold. And what's being said is in a way factual, but also not completely true. Do you know what I mean? Like, it does, things do sound cuckoo from the outside. And I keep reading like, Oh, it's a cult. And I'm like, this is the worst run cult. I, uh, how, it's just, there's no, what, really? Like, okay, this is a bad, all these other cults have money and boats and like cool things. And it's like, we're like, can we, can the doors stay open? We're broke, you know? So I'm like, okay, this is like not, it's a bad cult. Um, <laughs> but the, the way that things look from the outsider, you know, it's, <laughs> looks a little cuckoo, you know what I mean? At the same time, if I have an inside view uh, and people are asking, you know, really poignant questions, like, what can I trust? I don't know, you, yourself, <laughs> you know, your own wisdom. And uh, a sense of trying to think about what it feels like to be um, at the same time, for me, I'm at a place in my life where I really can work with my own reactivity. That is my job as a practitioner. And I don't have to like be petty fingers on Facebook saying the first thing that comes to my mind. As a matter of fact, I rarely, I really don't because it's useless, one, and two, it kind of creates a sense of, um, a false sense of accomplishment for me. And I'm actually trying to work with this very challenging situation that's 
real and happening in real time. And arguing with weirdos on Facebook just seems like avoidance. And there's a, I, I'm calling on myself to really be present for uh, criticism. And that's, that's really not at me, but I'm just there and that's like, that's fine. And also to speak back and hold my teacher accountable and ask questions of him. And also how can I be of service to those who've been harmed, just listening, if that's something that's um, helpful for them. Sometimes that's all people want, is to be heard, seen. And I personally feel like we have an opportunity to actually ask to shine a light in the dark corners. I mean, the, you know what the abiding image is in Shambhala, right? What is it? Great Eastern Sun. Okay, that's one. A person. Just a regular person. Okay. What do we call Shambhalians? Warriors. And a warrior without aggression, not a warrior who's waging war, but a warrior who's unafraid to look at the abyss and have it look back. to be accommodating, you know, the feminine principle of accommodation without which you can have no wisdom arise or the wisdom that arises without accommodation is aggressive. And so when people newer to the path get angry, yeah, that makes sense. And I say, I can hold your anger because this is precious to you and you're wondering what's gonna happen and I've been here longer, and there are people who've been here longer than me, and we actually can hold you like we've been held. I'll tell one little story, then I'd like to do the breakout group. So I was on retreat last year um, in uh, Taramagush, Nova Scotia, at one of the land, Shambhala Land Centers, Dorje Demmeling, which I hate that place. <laughs> the mosquitoes there are horrendous. Anyway, whatever. It's very rustic. <laughs> but it was better when I went last year. It was better than it had been 10 years before. In terms of, anyway, so I, <laughs> uh, talking to one of the teachers, one of the acharyas, Christy Cashman, who I love and who's just, you know, I think she started meditating when she was 19 and she's close to 70. If, uh, and she's just powerful, 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 and also very spacious, powerful teacher. And I said to her, you know, I'm very grateful to those of you who kept Shambhala going after Trimpa Rinpoche died and after the crisis of the Vajra region, after the Vajra region died. And I said, I can't imagine what it was like to hold that. You know, she was one of those Shambhalians who moved, who left the States and moved to Halifax, you know, where the sort of center of the mandala is, was. And I said, I just can't imagine that you stayed and practiced and studied and you know, all these years later, I get to be here with you, you know, hearing these profound teachings. And then a year later, <laughs> I ha we have an opportunity. I was on retreat with the Sakyang in June, early June for two weeks. And it was unbelievable, so powerful. 200, over 200 of us, we were entering the scorpion seal path, the Zochen path in Shambhala. 
then a week later, we come back and that, you know, the second Project Sunshine report broke and I was just, I don't even, I just cried for three days. I mean, my partner just helped, I just cried, 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 cried. And for the whole situation. And watch the people who felt they knew what was right with the pitchforks and the torches. And then watch the people who were like, uh, someone said to me, I think in an email, no big deal, you know? So, you know, and then a lot of turmoil. But it's good news when we unearth the shadow side, our own, and the kind of the organizational, the lineage karma is good. This is good. Secrets keep us sick. And so I'm trying to call on all the tools that I have, remembering the view and the ground of basic goodness, working with my own mind, my own confusion, my own hope, my own fear, my own um, sense of righteousness, my own arrogance, my own um, fantastical mind, magical thinking, my own um, grasping that actually covers a just genuine longing to practice and study and teach. But there's a little um, infection of like capitalist longing there too. And so kind of just getting down to real basics, shamatha, four dharmas of Gampopa, <laughs> refuge vow, um, Tonglen, doing a lot of, doing the protector chants at night, just, you know, having conversations with people, looking at my own mind, being in conversation with other people, I'm doing my own inventory right now where I'm looking at my resentments, my fear, my sexual behavior. And trying to become more wakeful around how I live my life, around how I treat people, how I treat myself. So to that end, I'd like us to, um, I think there's gonna be some food soon, and I'd love for us to break into small groups and choose one of those questions to just discuss, that I, the four questions that I enumerated. What's the purpose of this group? Or you can just, you can choose any one of them. What's the purpose of this group? What's the purpose of Shambhala in your view and experience? Or what more can we do to bring about, let's say, enlightened society or bring about a meditative society to manifest basic goodness? Are we attracting people from the community, a, a good cross-section of our community, different backgrounds. And then finally, do new people stick with us? Or do we have excessive turnover and what can we do about that? So, you ready to do a little work? Maybe before we do that, I'll take a couple of questions and then we can just go to our breakout groups. I don't know if we have a microphone person, but I'll just repeat the question for the recording. Yes, so the question is how do you 
work with what appears to be an external situation or drama when you're working with your own stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you tell? Can you say a little bit about your experience? Is it? What are you experiencing with when you try to do that? Yes. Great. So the wisdom, Jacob has said, the wisdom comes when he sees that, or you see that the, your situation is not separate. I think that's right. I think, um, so for instance, I'll say, I'm not responsible for the, I didn't, I'm not responsible for the Sakyong's behavior, or Chogam Trimper's behavior, or the Vajra Regent's behavior, or any other. But I also see where it's degrees of, let's say, obscuration or ignorance around um, relating to other people. And we can, I can be both like clear on wanting there to be some kind of restorative justice situation where the person harmed is cared for and maybe able to re-enter the community if they so choose. And the person who's done the harm is able to um, also reintegrate into different ways into the community, you know, that we don't just throw people away. But we don't ignore either. So that's where it gets tricky because we are like really binary. We're like, we all have our limits. Well, that, I don't, I'm against the death penalty, but that, get the death penalty, you know? And so it's hard to be like an abolitionist, you know? Like I don't, I think like very few people should be in prison and they should not be in prison for the rest of their lives. And prison, if they're gonna be prisons, they should actually be about working with people and saying, you actually are so harmful in your external behavior that we need to work with you in a contained place and give you time and space to reconnect with your humanity. But prisons are business, so that's a whole different situation. But I think our instinct is like to drop the teachings and say, this is the limit. And there's good and, there is good and bad, and there is right and wrong. And these are the solutions for that. Instead of saying, how can we hold people accountable and help them heal? And maybe, you know, maybe that's with space and time and whatever. But I think the first step is like understanding the on a very um, real, earthy level, the lack of separation. The like, I have done, I have, have I ever been selfish in a sexual relationship? Yes. Right? It may not be lack of consent or an abuse situation, but have I ever been thoughtless? Have I ever um, used someone? Right, and so then it gets, it start, you start to get a little closer and you're like, ooh, I'm not as pristine as I think I am. And, and maybe there's still some people in my life when they think, when they hear my name, maybe they have some you know, bad thoughts. So if we think about that for ourselves, maybe we, some of our self-righteousness might level, <laughs> level off a little bit. And, and it's like, oh, I've maybe actually left some pain in my wake too that hasn't been cleaned up. Now some of that, some of us may have cleaned up, but some of us may have not. On the, on the other hand, I think sometimes we also have to stabilize ourselves first. You know that thing of put the oxygen mask, they say on the plane, it seems so stupid. But if you think about it, if you put the oxygen mask on a child and then you pass out, you can't actually help them, you know? So this whole idea of like helpfulness and compassion or, or working with other people's pain, you have to actually do that from a stable place, not from a place of depletion. So part of shamatha actually is when we stabilize, when we have clarity and we have strength, then that comes before the going out before the bodhisattva activity. You have to, if you're like a cuckoo bodhisattva, then you're actually transmitting your, your, your neurosis and your confusion, you're not being helpful. But when you become, when you start to stabilize, then it's like, oh, I can take in a little bit. Oh, there's my limit or whatever. And then you can take in more and more without hurting yourself. Thank you for your question. Yes. You know, interaction 
This is such a great question. This is such a great question, and it's not only happening here. Actually, my older brother and I were having this conversation around a, a literary figure that I know somewhat well, and that um, he sort of knows, and who was, you know, had acute. Anyway, basically, what happened is people who were friends are now the whole community is divided, right? And so, not talking to each other, right? This whole question of how do we actually relate to each other, and. That's the thing, right, is that one, I really knew that I needed Sangha, as irritating as it can be. The community of practitioners is so important. And are we relating to each other, face to face, actually? And, or, you know, on the phone, or, you know, not just through social media or email or something. And I think this is really important because there's a tender quality when you just talk with someone, you just, you're just there. There's some kind of, there's a physical, energetic exchange happening. And I do think we need more listening to each other and more talking to each other. Um, and we need each other, frankly. We're social beings. And there's strength that happens when you practice in a group. It fortifies your own practice. It clarifies things sometimes. So I think there is, a, there is an aspect of trying to figure out how to come together, not just in crisis, but also how to build together. How to, I've been relying a lot on my friendships. And that has felt like, oh, it's taken this to kind of sharpen that even more for me that, you know, I'm a New Yorker, and you know how we're like, oh, we should get together, right? The New York phrase. Oh my goodness, it's so, you run into someone on the street, it's so good to see you, we should get together. A year later, you run into them, oh, it's so good. You know, and so really understanding that, like, you know, death is certain and the time of death is uncertain. <laughs> so like, how am I gonna actually live my life with a sense of enjoyment and a sense of connection? Because that's what I really want, is to connect. Um, so I do think there's a little bit of reaching out and I've moved towards, when I give Dharma talks, really making sure there's a lot of, there's time to really connect with one another because I think that's why people, they come here for the teachings but they also come here to be in relationship to one another. Maybe one more and then we'll, yeah, hi. Great, so how can we feel as a community a sense of joint accountability? I think, you know, a hundred people would give you a hundred different answers, but here's my take. I think one that the center of the mandala is actually, in terms of the earth equality, is actually each center now. I think each center or each practice place has to really figure out its own um, way and its own flavor. And really, as the Bajadara has said, that natural hierarchy is actually like a flower and not like a lid, and we've been in lid mode, even if we haven't meant to be, it's been much more linear, more like a ladder, and I think we need to really think about the um, wisdom of flowers blooming, right? And how it, even the center of the flower is, just is right there with the petals and the pistol, anyway, the stem, and I've, I've tried to remember all the different parts, but I can't, but the point is that there's something both gentle and beautiful about it, natural about it, and completely powerful and life-giving, right, and symbiotic. And I think that at the same time, humans do need, and not just humans, uh, many sentient beings do need the example of a good human being. You know, we, we have athletes we like because of what they're able to achieve, right? And we, there's something about the ex people who sacrifice a quote unquote normal life to try to do something extraordinary that is very helpful. And so I think it's painful when that is not just imperfect, we all know that there's no such thing as human perfection, but when it's, um, when there's a shadow side, you know, that's really also powerful. And I think accountability starts with, um, Reimagining what a society, we talk about enlightened society, 
one of the things I've noticed is that the symbol of the organization is a little not enlightened society from the lack of living wages people get to just bad organizational, from organizational point of view, just a lot of weird, there's, you know, just how are decisions made, a lot of, it's just, it's just very opaque. And I think some of that comes from wanting, a good place of wanting to have um, protection, but protection is, clarity is also part of protection and responsible transparency. So I think it's sort of like um, working with the local. And I'll, I'll just give you an example from my personal life, my work life, is I was like, I'm an academic. And people are like, I'm gonna change academia. And I was like, good luck, you'll be dead, and academia will still be going on. And I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna boop, boop, boop. And I was like, what can I actually do? I can't take on the university. Not that I wanna, would wanna take you on university. I can't. I can't take on the, you know, in terms of changes, I can't take on the college, can't even really take on my department, but I, I can work with graduate students. I sit on the Graduate Student Education Policy Committee, I work on graduate admissions, I mentor graduate students, I we have meetings with them three times a semester to find out what they're not getting, what they need, advocating for better health insurance, more money for, for the classes they teach. Very, just like, that's where I, my other friends, oh, I'm going to this meeting with this student, this group. Good luck, have fun, see you later. I'm going to this protest, great, I'm going home. Do you know what I mean? And so I think sometimes reining in the ego and saying like, what is it I actually wanna do and what can I do? Some people are like, I'm just working on financial, financial stuff. Other people are like, I'm just teaching. Other people are like, working in organizational development, logistics. You know what I mean? So I think it's like, getting some kind of ground in what can I do, and then you begin to work with other people and say, we have some kind of common idea and we're gonna, you know, because I, I imagine that we, one of the first iterations of this might be, we might see different kinds of organizations evolving out of this situation. People may need different things. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. But I think we have to stop imagining that we can do everything and take on everything and just have a little trust that like chaos is the law of the universe and that it's actually good news in the sense of if it's waking us up and asking us to ground ourselves in practice, then it doesn't feel good and it's not good in terms of people who've been harmed or hurt or that's not good. But if it's an opportunity to actually bring more clarity to a situation, less confusion, less habitual patterns that are, we can say are intergenerational, that's good news. You know, and it's not just us. There is no place in the world, I mean, I wish this was happening in academia. It's like so, I mean, I can't say it's so far from happening, but it's just, there's so much fear of reprisal that it's just like, you can't even touch racial harm, sexual harm. It's just, it's people just leave or die, really, or just suffer along. And so I think that, why do we practice for exactly this? When the world falls apart, when the world ends, which it does every day for someone. That's why we practice. And there are logistical things and there are earthy things, but why we practice is because the world is constantly falling apart. And it, the only ground in a groundless situation is our practice. And that is the ability to, in the moment, try our best to work with what's going on. Our, just do our best. You know, like, just with heartbreak and all the other feelings. Um, so that's what I would say. I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know. So thank you for coming tonight, I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Smalls. Thank you, Shante. Thank you for that talk. Thank you for everyone who participated in the Q&A. Thank you for listening. 
Our website is ny.shabala.org, where you can see all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Again, the Meditation in the City retreat, led by Shante Smalls, begins this Friday, August 17th. Email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org, questions, comments, suggestions. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Later. <laughs>